And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the great telework era is over, partly because the benefits are not so certain. Plus, the Labor Department shines a spotlight on the nation's apprentice programs. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, and we start with telework, the National Science Foundation, like many federal agencies recently announced or maybe pronounced, upcoming telework changes for its employees. That means less of it. Now the American Federation of Government Employees is calling on the agency to take a step back from those plans. That's after a union-conducted survey found that a majority of NSF employees are concerned about going back to the office more often. Some threaten to leave if these plans are implemented. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, what are those plans specifically? What was NSF actually asking people to do? NSF is saying that employees, both telework-eligible employees that are in the bargaining unit for AFGE as well as IPA employees, are going to have to come into the office four days per two-week pay period. That's going to start in late October. The agency announced last month and That is also taking place at agency headquarters for NSF. And of course, as you said, NSF isn't necessarily unique in in their announcement to return employees to the office, but they are getting a little more pushback from their union than what we've seen from a lot of other agencies here. All right. And what exactly is AFGE pushing back against? What is it they don't like here? What happened initially in July after NSF leadership made the announcement was that AFGE pushed back to say that that announcement was made for their bargaining unit employees prior to completing union negotiations. AFGE, the local chapter there, did have a handful of informal discussions with management about telework changes and potential changes to those flexibilities. But they said that the uh, agency went forward with the plans without completing negotiations. In response to that, AFGE conducted a survey of NSF employees after that announcement to hear more and kind of collected a lot of data to see, you know, how are employees actually feeling about this? And the results were actually pretty telling. What were the results? We don't want to come back. Generally, yes, but there were a couple surprises in there as well. So a majority of respondents said that the current requirements of working in the office two days per pay period, that's what NSF has right now, as well as many other agencies, that's kind of been the standard operating model for several months or or even longer. They said that current setup works well, they can adjust to it. But if it were to increase to the four day per pay period, as NSF is planning, about 40% said that they would have trouble adjusting. And about 25%, so about a quarter of employees, said that level of in-office expectations would be, quote, unworkable. So there is this pushback that we are seeing from NSF employees. Um, Again, this is something that it's not necessarily unique to NSF. This is a feeling of federal employees. But interestingly, in the results of this AFG survey as well, not everyone said necessarily that going back to the office more often was a bad thing. There was a small minority who said that going back to the office more often would actually be their preference or, you know, they understand that there has to be this kind of flexibility back and forth. It's a hybrid workforce, but they want the time that they spend in the office to be more meaningful. And that's kind of what the the crux of this OMB memo, which is what's pushing a lot of agencies toward this return to office is, is calling for is, you know, 
it's not just being on Teams meetings or Zoom meetings in the office, but, you know, let's have a real reason to to be there together in person. And that's what they're going for. Jesus Soriano, who's president of AFGE Local 3403, who represents NSF employees, explained what he hopes NSF will take away from the survey results. It is our hope that once management learns the reality where the NSF employees are, their posture will be more realistic. One size fits all is not a policy that protects the mission of NSF. The agency is at a crossroads. NSF has a choice to make. Do become better, stronger, more efficient by applying the lessons learned and all the efficiencies we've gained through hybrid work models, telework, remote, flexibilities, or do we go backwards? Well, when you put it that way, it doesn't leave much of a choice. So you've got this ballet going on here, NSF putting out a policy, the AFGE responding with a survey. What did the NSF respond to when AFGE presented the survey results? They said that they do deeply value and appreciate employee feedback, but at this time, they're not planning to make any changes to that return to office announcement that they made in July. They're going to carry it forward to implement in October, but they did emphasize that they want to maintain flexibility for employees wherever possible, and that's something that they're going to continue to look into. Uh, They said they will also try to continue to collaborate with AFGE, with that uh, local chapter for NSF employees to make sure that, you know, people are happy with the the way things are going. That's, That's kind of their goal at the end of the day here. Yeah, I mean, four days out of the work period in the office means six days you're not there. So that seems like an enormous amount of flexibility. They're not saying you have to be here Tuesday and Wednesday every week, just two days out of the 10. You could do do Monday through Thursday for one pay period, and then you're done. You get six days off, not off, six days at home or wherever, or you could do the Monday and Friday and Monday and Friday. I mean, there's limitless combinations here. No, that is an interesting point. And to just add to that for a moment, you know, NSF hasn't specifically said how they're going to lay it out, but a lot of agencies have kind of focused on this emphasis of whatever the days in the office are should line up among employees. So they've talked about a lot of them having core days in the office. So let's say, for example, every Wednesday, that's when you should plan, you know, in-person meetings, training sessions, et cetera. So that employees, you know, it makes sense for them to be in the office. I think that's kind of the emphasis. Again, this is not something that NSF has specifically alluded to, but other agencies have have talked about this idea of core days and meaningful in-person work. And as of a couple of weeks ago, about nine agencies out of, I don't know how many scores of them that were supposed to be doing this, the cabinet agencies, the large independent agencies, et cetera, were supposed to have plans. They didn't. And then the... White House Chief of Staff, Jeff Zients, sent out his little harsher memo. What's happened since then? I mean, NSF is not the only agency implementing these telework changes, but a lot of them still haven't. It's hard to say exactly because not every agency has made their plans public, but the ones that have, we are seeing a lot of this push coming in September and October. That memo from the White House that you're referring to, he talked about aggressively executing return to office plans 
starting in next month in September and going through October. So not every agency has publicly said this is what our return to office plan is, but the ones who have, many of them are taking effect as early as next month. So this is coming up very quickly for agencies, and it's not just NSF. Yeah, that's a great phrase with two edges. The agencies will aggressively execute their plans, and then the unions will aggressively execute the plans. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Labor Department shines a spotlight on the nation's apprentice programs. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Apprenticeships go back for eons in time. They became codified in the United States some 86 years ago with the enactment of the National Apprenticeship Act. Now the Labor Department has brought new focus to this part of job training through what it calls the Apprentice Trailblazer Initiative. For what that is and what labor hopes to accomplish, we turn to Senior Policy Advisor Manny Lamar. Mr. Lamar, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. A pleasure to be joining you. And let's start with the background here. Where does the whole idea of apprentices and apprenticeship live in the Labor Department, and how extensive is it in the United States? The National Apprenticeship Act really came about in 1937, but the concept of apprenticeship has always been around, has always existed, but it was codified in the 1937 National Apprenticeship Act. Now, when we think about apprenticeship, one thing that's important to note and differentiate is what's the difference between a registered apprenticeship and other forms of work-based learning, such as internships and other on-the-job training models. When we talk about registered apprenticeships here, we're talking about an industry-driven, high-quality career pathway that is validated by the U.S. Department of Labor. And it happens either through the U.S. Department of Labor or state apprenticeship agencies. But really, the core difference of a registered apprenticeship and why we call it the gold standard is that it includes paid work experience. It always includes paid work experience, classroom instruction, and a portable nationally recognized credential. And so when you put those together, that really sets it apart as the gold standard. And in addition to a credential, there's also components of diversity, quality, and safety that is embedded within our apprenticeship regulations at the Department of Labor. And so there's additional components to ensure that the apprentices are safe, they're protected, and that goes, again, all the way back to the National Apprenticeship Act. But within the Department of Labor, ETA, we have the Office of Apprenticeship, and that office really oversees apprenticeship really around policy across the U.S. Sure. And when you say nationally recognized credentials, aren't a lot of trades that have apprenticeships state licensing? I mean, how many are there that are actually requiring a national credential? I mean, give us some examples. Right. So when I talk about a national recognized credential, I'm talking about the certificate that you receive, the certificate of completion that you receive for completing the registered apprenticeships. States may have additional specific licensing required for particular occupations, but when we talk about a nationally recognized credential, we're talking about the national certificate of completion that is recognized across the country for completing the registered apprenticeship where they know that you completed a bona fide approved registered apprenticeship. Because these tend to center around the crafts and trades, am I correct in saying? Steam fitting, welding, electrical type of work that are highly skilled trades, but those tend to be localized types of licensing to actually execute as a profession. 
So that is somewhat correct. I think what's important to know is that historically, registered apprenticeship were and have been in the construction trades, whether we're talking about carpenters, plumbers, electricians, operating engineers, and so forth. However, I think what's important to know is that across the country, that there's registered apprenticeships across a variety of sectors, and that includes healthcare, cybersecurity, information technology. We even have them in education, and I can provide some quick statistics for you, for example, which is in the past year, we started off with K-12 teacher apprenticeships in two states about a year ago. Now we're at 21, going on 23 states, and with over, you know, four dozen programs in K-12 teacher education. We have apprenticeships in trucking, and we have apprenticeships in cybersecurity, uh, as I uh, mentioned. So registered apprenticeships really cuts across sectors in the country, but you're right in that the foundation has been in the building trades, but it really is existing across sectors. And we have the data on apprenticeship.gov that really shows the scale and scope of apprenticeships now in new sectors. We're speaking with Manny Lamar. He's a senior policy advisor at the Labor Department's Employment and Training Administration. And let's talk about the Apprentice Trailblazer Initiative that is new here on the 86th anniversary You could have done it on the 85th or the 90th, but 86th of the 1937 law. What is this initiative all about? What does it seek to do? Really, when we think about scaling registered apprenticeships across the country, we know a couple of things that are really important. Number one, it's very important to include the voice of young people. Number two, it's important to include the voice of individuals that actually went through an apprenticeship program. So the apprentice Trailblazer Initiative is really designed to create a national network of diverse apprentices and apprenticeship graduates of all ages and backgrounds to really serve as champions of registered apprenticeships. And we want them to share their perspectives, their success stories, and experiences as apprentices to really help elevate and support and scaling the registered apprenticeship system across the country. But that's really what it's at the core it is, is sharing their perspectives and the benefits, providing examples of innovative ideas and strategies to strengthen and modernize and diversify the program, thinking strategically around increasing support for underrepresented populations um, in uh, underserved communities, as well as promoting and expanding awareness of registered apprenticeships for career seekers, really looking to get access to good quality jobs and stability for their families and within their communities. But that's really at the core of what the Apprentice Trailblazer is. So will people share videos of themselves talking about what's going on in their lives and how they became apprentices and what they accomplished? Will it be published stories? I mean, what form will all of this kind of promotion take? A few things and more to come. So it will include highlighting success stories, whether it's virtually highlighting, engaging with them in networks, in-person engagement, both virtual and in-person engagement. So to some of the examples that you mentioned, it would include things as, as videos, written, but mainly it's really around elevating their voices across both virtual and in-person engagement as well. But I do think one other thing that's important to highlight is like, why, if I'm an apprentice or an apprentice graduate, I might be thinking like, what's in it for me? Like, why should I become an apprentice trailblazer? And I think for that component, we really see it as a great opportunity for professional development. So when we think about continuing skill building, teamwork, leadership, you know, we see it as an opportunity to really help shape and modernize registered apprenticeships 
and reflect the various experiences of individuals, but also, so again, to strengthen their network, serve as role models. We know that there are a lot of apprentices that want to support and serve as role models. So it's both really elevating their network and being able to receive professional development in, in network as well as serving as mentors and supporting and sharing their experience as well through the national recognition. And do you think that there might be opportunity for other industries that don't have formal apprentice programs to see this and say, maybe this could benefit my industry also? That's a great point. Absolutely. It's partly that too, that you're absolutely spot on with that. It's not just the existing industries and sponsors and employers that have registered apprenticeships that can see this and uh, and expand but it's also those that don't have registered apprenticeship programs to also elevate and exceed the opportunities. What's in it for them? What's in it for their employees? We know that registered apprenticeship, the return on investment, there's a over 90% employees stay and retain on the job. We know that we have studies that shows that they're more productive. They're more likely to stay and retain. So those employers that don't have apprenticeships can see this as an opportunity as well to really expand on it. And for those companies or industries that have federally recognized or labor department recognized and certified apprentice programs, what is the advantage of having that to them? It's really about continuing to expand, it, as I mentioned before, around the return on investment. Um, you know, for every one dollar um, investment that employers make, there's a you know one forty four in return. For every one dollar that the um, federal investments, there's twenty eight dollars in return. So. I say that to say, you know, to your question around what's in it for them, it's really around continuing to elevate the best practices and the good examples that their companies are leveraging as part of the registered apprenticeship. But I do think one other thing that's important to highlight, you know, as we think about this is this is really part of our broader youth employment work strategy. And so within the Department of Labor, and it's almost 18 years now since we've launched a national youth employment strategy. And really, that really consists of a no-wrong-doors approach for young people, paid work experience, and industry commitment. So this goes back to your question around the employers, too, the industry commitment to young people. So this has been really the apprentice trailblazer is really synced around a broader. So it's not just an isolated initiative. It's really synced around a broader youth employment strategy that we see within the Department of Labor and ETA that really leads up to National Apprenticeship Week, November 13th to the 19th. So really the National Apprenticeship Week is a week of really highlighting opportunities within apprenticeships, highlighting success stories, various events and engagement across that um, National Apprenticeship Week. So all of this is really part of a broader strategy that we see within the Department of Labor. Manny Lamar is a senior policy advisor at the Labor Department's Employment and Training Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to join you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, you can't improve service to veterans without the manpower to do it. But first, the great telework era is over, partly because the benefits are uncertain. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
The Government Accountability Office has been shifting through stacks of research on how many people actually teleworked over the last three years and whether telework will continue to have a positive economic impact. For what the auditors learned, we turn to the GAO's Director of Education, Workforce and Income Security, John Sawyer. Mr. Sawyer, good to have you back. Hi, Tom. Thank you. It is a pleasure and an honor to be back. And tell us what you were looking at here. It looks like you did sort of a survey of the surveys that have been done. Exactly. We were asked through a congressional request to look at the impact of telework on worker productivity and worker performance. And we also presented sort of a snapshot as to what telework was like prior to the pandemic and telework after the pandemic. And I think one of the most surprising findings is how low the percentage of people teleworking actually was, even though the streets were devoid of cars and people for a while. Exactly. That is one thing that we did find that I think some 90 percent of individuals still did not telework. While telework increased, there was still a great deal of individuals in our economy that did not telework. We found that a lot of that is driven because certain occupations, certain industries just do not lend itself to telework. So for every Manhattan office building, there's probably 10 chicken processing plants where people have to process chickens hands-on. Absolutely, because the nature of the job requires demands of physical presence to accomplish the goals and objective. Yeah, so you really can't walk down, you know, 6th Avenue and get some sense of what the economy is really all about then, can you? Absolutely. There are factors to consider. There are other, as I said, industries and occupations that kept this economy going during one of the worst events that our country has experienced, and that is the pandemic. And by the way, this particular survey of the literature did not include federal teleworking experience. You are correct. We excluded that because the objectives that we were presented allowed us or required us to exclude public administration from our review. However, we do have work that we are currently designing that is looking at telework in the federal government. This review did not cover it. And getting back to the private sector then, what did you find in terms of the economic benefits or other benefits? And I guess one of the findings you had is that in the future, it's all uncertain, the effects of telework. So what was the general trend you found here? I think to answer that is uh, when you talk about the benefits of teleworking, the studies that we reviewed did show a slight increase in telework. But I also believe that what's important to note, as we mentioned earlier, that based on your job, the occupation, the industry, telework may not lend itself so quickly or so easily for a certain industry. So I believe that a company, a firm or business, whoever's designing a future telework policy or the posture of telework in the future, you first have to know what your brand is. What are your objectives? What is it that you're accomplishing? What is it that you need to accomplish? And then you develop outcomes to measure whether or not telework is beneficial. We're speaking with John Sawyer. He's Director of Education, Workforce, and Income Security Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And so I guess it varies then by industry. I mean, is there any one story that we can tell here as to whether telework is effective for industry in general or how widely does it vary? Well, there were studies from our review, for instance, Tom, of call centers 
that if your objective is to answer phone calls and provide information, then the results show that productivity did increase some 13%. However, if you are working as a uh, research scientist, if you're developing uh, research for the next product line, then it's kind of harder to really ascertain whether or not telework was productive in that environment. So those are the type of things that we found in our review. In other words, to the extent that you can even measure productivity has a big effect on whether you know the effects of telework. Call centers, calls completed, calls resolved, calls satisfaction, they measure every single millisecond of a uh, telework call. Research science, how do you measure productivity when, you know, 10 years of research could, whoops, we were wrong. You know, that's a good outcome, but it's kind of hard to measure productivity there. Absolutely. And that is one of the things that we did note and encountered during our review of the research available. Other than call centers, did any other type of occupation stand out as something that was helped by telework or was more productive? Again, what we found is that how you measure telework drives the results. For instance, subjective information, information that's coming from individuals assessing their productivity teleworking show that, yes, based on those survey results, individuals said that they were more productive at home. And that is one of the things we noted that when you determine or when you identify the measures of measuring the impact of telework, you just have to be careful what you use because there are objective measurements and subjective measurements, and they give you different results. Yes, right. So self-reporting is going to be self-selecting. Of course, I, you know, if I like telework, I guess there are a few people that maybe prefer the office, or actually there's more than a few. They might feel that they're more productive. Although I've heard it really both ways. People that prefer the office feel that even though they were equally productive, let's say, they just prefer the office because of non-tangible benefits. And probably maybe that's the crux here, is that so much of telework qualities are really intangible. Absolutely. One study mentioning that, Tom, brings to mind a study that found that employees were more likely to be more innovative during their brainstorming sessions that was in the office place versus video conferencing or virtual. The study found that the innovations, the input was just not as great as it was inside the workplace. Right, so that there is an intangible effect of human interaction that results in a measurable change in output. Absolutely, which is one of the things that I believe that any entity or business that's looking at the future of telework, you have to consider such things as this. What is the impact on collaboration? What is the impact on communication in going forward with a telework policy? What are the risks? What are you willing to tolerate? And those are factors that must be considered. And looking at the list of 44 studies that you looked at, that GAO evaluated to come up with its findings, these are worldwide. I mean, some of them don't even concern the United States, but you know, it's a big world and lots of economies going on. But when you are designing the work for looking at the federal government, do you think there are that many studies available? Or will you be using this methodology in the first place for this upcoming work? Let me say a little about our methodology. 
when we took on this project, we did a literature search. And as you said, we ended up with 44 studies, but we started with 181 studies and drilled down because we had to evaluate each study to see whether or not it was sufficient for answering the objectives at hand. And I believe that any evaluation of telework could apply a similar methodology. So I believe this methodology that was used in this report could be applied for future assessments with the understanding that, as you mentioned, foreign countries or information as it relates to foreign entities was included in our review. And that is because if the study meets our robust standard the robustness of his uh, methodology, the quality, and if the findings support the objectives that we have, then we would use that information to help drive information to answer the objectives. So, for example, if the Labor Department wanted to undertake some type of a study or, say, NIH, which has all these scientists and all this research and grantees and so on, the really key to getting a useful outcome is down-selecting the studies that you use to do your survey of. That is one approach. But again, they would have to identify their parameters for the type of information that is needed to meet the objectives at hand. So I do agree with that. And a final question, besides the congressional requesters, who else could benefit from reading this report, do you think? I believe anyone in a posture as I said, of designing the future of telework would benefit from this. And one of the messages that really come across, or I believe that came out of the data, was one, the benefits. There are benefits in telework. And the main ones that I can think of right now, the benefit of recruitment and retention of staff. Telework, if you have a telework policy, it allows you to now recruit from greater geographic areas thus drawing from a wider pool of talent from across the spectrum. And then retention. Many employees or staff view telework as an employee benefit, and that would help with the retention. However, as we mentioned, there are still challenges. The challenge is how do you measure telework? How do you identify the appropriate outcomes to assess is telework appropriate for meeting the objectives of your agency? All right, some good wisdom there. It's an interesting report. John Sawyer is Director of Education, Workforce, and Income Security at the GAO. As always, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive wherever you're working. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, you can't improve services to veterans without the manpower to do it. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. For news on the federal pay raise. To learn how other agencies handle IT modernization. To see how Congress funds my agency. For changes to my TRICARE benefits. Federal News Network. Helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Veterans Benefits Administration needs talent in all sorts of areas. Needing to fill differing jobs requires differing recruitment strategies. 
For how they're going about it, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke to the executive director of the VBA's Office of Human Capital Services, Dr. Aaron Lee. So our hiring process has been um, really successful. I'm very excited to talk to all of your uh, listeners and viewers about what we're doing, especially in terms of supporting PACTAC. So because of that wonderful piece of legislation, we're able to hire um, in ways that we've never been able to hire before, which provides so many opportunities, not only to veterans, but to non-veterans who are interested in supporting um, our nation's heroes. And so some of the things that we've been doing thus far is doing a lot of recruitment um, around uh, local colleges, um, looking for recent college graduates, um, also looking at post-secondary graduates. And then we're also looking at other opportunities, especially for our military spouses, because we've noticed over the years that for those who are looking for those types of careers and are following their service member, um, they always don't have the same opportunities that they have from uh, facility to facility or installation site to installation site. And so we've been able to really target that population in a way we never have before. So because of this great uh, piece of legislation, we're able to do that. And so we're really really looking forward to continuing um, the largest uh, hiring act that we've ever had in the history of VBA. There's a wide variety of positions available uh, working with Veterans Affairs. Where right now are you all focused on? What positions are you most focused on filling? So we have three that we're focused on by virtue of their impact on PACT Act, but we have a host, uh, a robust amount of positions that everyone can can visit and, and review at vacareers.va.gov. But those three targeted positions are legal administrative specialists, which are very much like a call center agent. And so they have direct contact, one on one impact on our veterans, their service members, the families and those uh, that serve alongside of them and support them. And so they help those family members and the veteran to walk through the claims process. And so they provide them with all kinds of great information and knowledge um, along the way. And so if they ever have any questions about their services that they uh, so deserve and and the ones that we honor them with, those are the folks that deal with them uh, first. So when you call our 800 number, um, that's who will uh, pick up the phone. And they're all across uh, the nation. And those are also remote positions. So for folks who are interested in working from home and keeping that work-life balance that they've created maybe over the last few years, that's a great opportunity for them. Then we have our veteran service representative position and our rating veteran service representative positions. And those two positions are directly tied to the claims process as they work on both ends, the front end of the development side of the claim for the veteran, as well as the uh, end point of it when the veteran's claim is rated, and then they're able to receive those benefits. So those are the uh, the three critical and key positions that directly support uh, PACT Act. Got it. And what have been what have you heard from uh, applicants or folks who were were thinking about applying um, that were some of the challenges that they had in the past of trying to uh, get get one of these jobs? And how are you all working towards uh, fixing that and offering new incentives? Well, one of the biggest challenges is the time frame that it takes to go through the hiring process. And so OPM has already set that time frame for us at around 80 days. And so when you think about what the private industry is able to offer, um, it does seem to be a challenge to wait that long at times for a position. Now, what we've been able to do as a virtue um, and, and as a reflection of the PACT Act, the OPM has granted us the direct hiring authority, which is an amazing opportunity for us to drastically cut uh, that hiring time frame more than in half. And so we're able to hire, in some instances, people right on the spot. So one of the things that our team did um, starting in November of last year was to host in-person hiring fairs 
And so we actually did that um, at a military installation site so we could target transitioning service members as well as military spouses. And so at that particular event, I think we had about 80 or so folks to show up and we were able to hire about 70 right on the spot. So well over 90 percent um, intake rate. And so that was a, a real great success story. And so then we started rolling those out throughout the rest of the year. So we've done about 10 to 12 now. And so that's something I think that people have not thought of because during the COVID period, obviously people weren't in person. We weren't doing those types of things. And even prior to COVID, we were doing a lot of virtual um, hiring. And so now we've really done a, a hybrid. And so that's really exciting for us. And as far as getting, once they are a member of your team, how have you all looked to improve your worker satisfaction rates? Um, you know, those things can have a tendency to go up and down, but um, as a member of the human capital office, what is it that you all um, focus on in, in ensuring that the employees are happy and they stay there once you do get them? So we've got this great program called Stay in VBA. And so that is what we use to increase employee retention and the employee experience. And so again, really ask for folks to check us out at vacareers.va.gov to learn more information. And, you know, just you personally, uh, what is it about the job that you enjoy the most? I guess, um, you know, you're, you're, you're a doctor, but you're, you're finding yourself in this position. What is it that about it that you enjoy? Serving those who serve so well for us. Uh, my grandfather is a Korean War, War veteran. Um, I've got other family members, uncles and such that were in the, the Vietnam War. So for me, it's an opportunity not only to pay back those who, who've given the ultimate sacrifice for me personally, but also for those who serve with them. So it's just a great honor for me to be a part of such an awesome mission. And you've mentioned a few avenues um, that, you know, folks can go to the website or go to one of your career events. Um, mm -hmm. Are you all looking at any other ways of recruiting new people that are coming down the pipeline? Absolutely. We know a lot of our younger generation is utilizing all of the social media sites. So you can find us on Twitter, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, all those varying sites. All of our jobs are, are posted there as well. And, you know, let's talk turkey. What kind of salary are folks looking at if they do uh, want to go after one of these jobs? So with the three positions I mentioned earlier, you can look at the lowest end, probably around the high 30s, uh, low 40,000 range, up to a six-figure salary, just depending on uh, the nature of your education and experience. And what kind of education and experience does it take for, say, a, one of those call center representatives that you mentioned or the other two positions? So those are career ladder positions. So coming in at the end of the ladder, at the, at the lower end of the ladder, there's very limited um, needs. So what we're really looking for is people with customer experience service. Um, if they've had that kind of experience, that's what we're looking for. And so all levels, all um, different experiences, and all education levels, we we have no limiting factor. So we encourage people to go to vacareers.va.gov and check those out. And is part of the challenge just the sheer volume of these jobs that, well, the, the, you know, a customer service representative, can you ever have too many for, for veterans or, you know, <laughs> is, it, is that part of the challenge as well as just that there is so much that needs to be done? Yeah, I think that you're you're right. We never can do enough for our veterans. And so we certainly want to ensure that we have um, as much support as we can to make sure that they get the services in a timely manner that really honors their service. So I encourage all of your listeners to go to vacareers.va.gov to check us out, especially our, our veterans. Please check us out. We are a veteran-centric organization. Over half of our employees are veterans. So we are definitely looking for you. Dr. Aaron Lee is the executive director of the Office of Human Capital Services at the Veterans Benefits Administration. Speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
the hacking of a Biden administration cabinet member's Microsoft email account has sparked a high-level government review of cloud security best practices in general. The Cyber Safety Review Board is just getting started on its exploration into that Microsoft incident. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Okay, so what's the board exactly going to do? What's its review mandate here, Justin? Yeah, this is going to look at the Microsoft incident, which occurred earlier this summer, as well as the broader targeting of cloud computing environments, as well as what government industry and cloud service providers should do to strengthen identity management and authentication in the cloud. And then once the board finishes up its review, they'll develop some recommendations that will help advance or hopefully help advance cybersecurity practices for both cloud computing customers and these big cloud service providers themselves. And this all stems from that Microsoft email incident earlier this summer. If folks don't remember, it involved suspected Chinese hackers using a stolen Microsoft key to forge access to the cloud-based email accounts, unclassified email accounts of Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, reportedly, as well as high-level State Department officials. It was a really targeted attack that took advantage of a weakness, really, in Microsoft's cloud environment. And there's more than one investigation into the same incident going on? Yeah, this has really been the federal uh, cybersecurity slow-burning story of the summer. Uh, After it happened, you know, there's some initial reaction to tamp things down. And then then Congress has stepped in, and they've launched multiple reviews into this incident as well. Uh, You know, the House Oversight and Accountability Committee has asked uh, government officials for more information on the incident. The... uh, some some members of the Senate have as well. And actually, Oregon Democrat Senator Ron Wyden ha- has called on multiple agencies to investigate Microsoft over what he called, quote unquote, negligent cybersecurity practices in connection with this breach. So this really has has a lot of attention from, from both Congress and, and now the executive branch with this Cyber Safety Review Board investigation. And what are the federal cybersecurity folks themselves saying about all of this and about cloud security? Yeah, it's interesting. There, there was a, a big summit uh, last week hosted by FCW NextGov on identity. And this is one of the things that kept on coming up repeatedly is, you know, identity in the cloud, this Microsoft incident, and what steps uh, agencies should take going forward. Uh, for, the, for a long time, you know, officials have said, yes, the cloud will be more secure in many ways than our, than our legacy IT environments, but there are still some responsibilities, some things that we really have to work out and make sure that we, we do to secure our data in the cloud. Ken Bible is the chief information security officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He talked a little bit about identity in the cloud. Identity in the cloud has become kind of the new attack surface, as we've seen from some recent very high-profile cases. When we started to make this move towards these cloud-based services, it exposed that fact that uh, there was a potential soft spot there that could be taken advantage of. And I think we're still, you know, nugging our way through it. I don't, I think we're in a, a point of irreversible momentum in terms of moving and continuing the migration towards cloud-based capabilities. I think sometimes China has the United States in its hands like a giant cantaloupe probing for soft spots all over the place, as he alluded to. Well, are these federal cyber leaders doing anything about this? What are they doing to actually improve things or change things? Yeah, there's been a lot of work out of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency to develop some cybersecurity baselines for widely used cloud security products. This this, uh, comes under its Secure Cloud Business Applications, or SCUBA, project, as they call it. 
And they're actually in the process of finalizing the cloud security baselines for Microsoft 365 suite of products, which, of course, are used across agencies and organizations across the world. Grant Dasher is the architecture branch chief for the Office of the Technical Director at CISA. It's been a helpful tool for us to work with the agencies to try and make sure that they're implementing best practices in the cloud identity space. Agencies are in a whole spectrum of different places. You know, some have very robust, mature, existing identity infrastructure that they're continuing to expand and leverage. Others are, are sort of redoing things in a more greenfield approach. Different agencies are taking different directions, but we're trying to support and assist them in that journey and make significant progress towards these goals. And one way to make progress in cyber has been touted for many years, and that is widespread adoption of multi-factor authentication and maybe getting away from passwords. But so far, that's been more talk than action. What's the latest there, Justin? Yeah, this actually came out in the Cyber Safety Review Board's last review, the one that most recently wrapped up on uh, this lapsus criminal hacking group that really ran rampant in 2021 and 2022 taking advantage of SMS uh, codes that are pushed out to people and other sort of automated ways of hacking into people's um, accounts to pull off a lot of their hacks. Chris DeRussia is the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. He sits on the Cyber Safety Review Board. And during last week's Identity Summit, he really focused on getting to phishing-proof multi-factor authentication as a stronger form of, uh, of security. A report that we put out on lapsus of like, it's time for everybody to move off of that SMS. Stuff is getting hacked by automated tools, folks. Got to move with alacrity towards phishing resistant MFA because it's just, it's driving without seatbelts, you know, and, and we shouldn't be doing that. That's right. We should not be doing that. So it's up to him to help get it started across government. What is the outcome of this investigation, the Cyber Review Board? Will they have specific recommendations and is Microsoft working with them in general? So with the Lapsus review, they've come out with some recommendations for technology providers that presumably includes Microsoft to immediately begin transitioning away from using both text message and voice multi-factor authentication. And actually agencies, uh, based on the, the report's re uh, recommendations, will work with industry on some sort of secure authentication roadmap. So that's something to look out for here to get to a, quote unquote, world without passwords, which, as we mentioned, is, is a big goal and, and we're still a far way off. And then the Microsoft review, you know, I, I think government has worked well with Microsoft on these things in the past. They're probably the biggest technology provider to government. And I think it's fair to say that they're going to be involved in this review. And it's it'll be interesting to see what they have in the form of recommendations for cloud security going forward. Yeah, world without passwords, as my grandmother would have said, we should live so long. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 